Rabbi Steve Weil. Rabbi Weil is the Senior Managing Director of the OU. He was also the rabbi for um, almost as long as I can remember, Beth Jacob in Los Angeles. And uh, he's on to share with us a little bit about Pesach upcoming, Rabbi Weil. Hi, good evening. How are you, Rabbi Pardo? I'm good. How are you doing? Good to be with you. First of all, we want to wish everyone stay safe, stay healthy, uh, and please, God, we're going to make it through this together. Really want to Amen. wish everyone a meaningful Rosh Chodesh, a meaningful Pesach. And with Rabbi Pardo, I remember the good old days of Beverly Hills. It's an honor to be with you. We're not in Beverly Hills, but we're uh, <laughs> not in Beverly Hills. On, the, on the East Coast. How are you? Um, yeah, you know, wherever we are, we're basically in, in our basements or in our living rooms. So <laughs> the view's more or less the same. Um, so Rabbi Weil, in addition to um, in addition to all the incredible work you do for the OU, you, I, I imagine, have run, how many Pesach Starim have you run? Yeah, we each year at the hotel, this is actually probably the first year in about 17 years that I'm not serving as a scholar in residence for a Pesach program. But uh, we get the honor of having a, a public Seder where we really bring people of all different types of backgrounds together and try to get everyone involved. Um, so uh, something that's on my mind, um, and I'm sure a lot of other people, there are an unbelievable amount of people who are running Sarum for the first time, either because they've been going to programs for a long time, or even if not, they've been going to their parents, they've been going to uh, aunts, uncles, and this is the first time they're at home and they're running Sarum by themselves. And uh, I, you know, hopefully this is, a, it'd be a good thing if we're all freaking out because it means we're, we're paying attention. So my first question is, what do you do before the Seder? What do you do in, in the weeks, the days leading up to the Seder to get yourself ready? And how do you prepare for it? Great question. Um, I would say this, instead of giving an Afi Komen present, assuming you have people at the Seder that are under the age of 18, it's not true that everyone here has that, I would pay per question. The whole point is it should be a night of curiosity, a night of stimulation. Don't give an Afi Komen present. This year we're not giving an Afi Komen present. You know, Manish Tana, why is this year different than all other years besides coronavirus? The reason is because we're going to get you to think and say we pay per question and you can keep your own tally. That's what I would do with the kids. Now, in terms of preparing for it, look at the text. The key is the text. The text is such a rich, juicy text. I'm not saying this because I was involved, I had the great honor of working with Rabbi Ganak, and we published something called An Exalted Evening. It's the Rabbi Soloveitchik Haggadah. An Exalted Evening, you can get it many places. I would normally say get it from the OU, but unfortunately our shipping group is not there. You can get it on Amazon. The reason it's very significant is because it's an analysis of the text, and the text is so rich, okay? But ask the questions is if you were reading it for the first time. I'll give you a very simple example. Why is it, if you and I were making the Seder, what would be our text? If I asked 100 people out there, pretending you've never been to a Seder before, what would you tell me would be the text of the Haggadah? The first 12, first 12 chapters of Exodus, right? Shmos ve'era and Bo. That's the story. How come we don't have that? How come the text of the Haggadah is four little psukim, four verses, which are the story of a Jewish farmer bringing his first fruits to the base of Mikdash. 
the first fruits to the temple. After he treks up the mountains to Jerusalem, he makes his declaration. Why did the rabbis choose that? And what does that tell you about the Seder? But there, there are 50 questions that we could ask that are just you know, crucial questions that just open up literally gold mines in the Seder. And that's what in preparation, if you don't have an exalted evening, whatever Haggadah you have, look at the text and write down your questions and then see what the great commentaries say. So, you know, I have a, I have a practice every year. I get a new Haggadah. That's my, my present to myself. So um, probably the biggest section just keeps, keeps growing. Thank God. But how do you, how do you keep yourself from falling to the trap of, 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 I, saying a vort or meaning everyone around the table just saying a vort because vorts are like very they're great but they're they're packaged they're canned the the free-flowing experience i i feel is so elusive where you're asking questions or people and people are really thinking about them and, and giving genuine answers how do you get there the, it all starts with the question even if you don't have the answer to the question if it's a question that's stimulating chances are if it bothers you, you know, it's, it's, it goes to the jugular of the text it's going to bother others and by the way, you see, some people, they, they, they pay for answers. I personally pay for questions. But if it's a good question, it will usually spur on very good dialogue. And again, I can't tell you which Haggadahs to use. I'm pushing, the reason I push Rabbi Salavechik Haggadah, an exalted evening, is because he's not, you know, in left field. He's dealing with the essential principles that define what the Seder is. And he's asking and wrestling with the questions that we should all be asking. That's why I'm pushing that. How do you, how do you balance different age groups? Meaning the kind of Seder you're doing for a five-year-old and the Seder you're doing for a, an 18-year-old, very different. So sometimes you get the, you, get, you have one or the other. What, what happens when they're both there? Right, and I think you in. lay it out at the beginning of the Seder. Say, look, when you get to the Arbabanim, the four types of learners, remember, you know, what's the difference between the Russia and the Chacham? So intellectually, they're both, they have the, both have the same capabilities. The tragedy of the Russia is that emotionally he's challenged. Emotionally, he's crippled. And then you have, of course, the, the Tom. And by the way, the Tom, or the, the Rambam refers to as a Tipesh. It's not just a kid who thinks in concrete, tangible terms. The Tom is also, there are many adults. We all have adults at our table that do not think conceptually. They don't think analytically. They think in very tangible, concrete terms. So, you know, so the Seder is really a multi-tiered Seder. Some people are visual learners. Some people are oral learners. Some people you know, are, are, are dramatic. Some people are more abstract and cerebral. And, and that's reflected. And I think you have to lay that out when you get to the four sons as to what kind of a Seder we're having. It's a multi-tiered Seder with different layers. One thing I just, if I could add, it's not crucial to have to cover everything at the Seder. Meaning, save certain ideas. You may throw out the question of the Seder, but use that as a conversation at lunch the next day or use it as a conversation. We got a three-day holiday, right? A three-day holiday. There's a lot to talk about at lunch. You don't want to have to necessarily use everything at the Seder. And by the way, what I also would do is use the Seder as a paradigm, as a model for every Shabbat meal, for every Yom Tov meal. Meaning what? That we're throwing out serious questions and we're wrestling with them. You know, and, and we're, we're looking at text. That's another thing that we as Jews do. Let's look at the text and what is the text telling us? You know, through, an, through it being linear and analytical, approaching the text. 
that's that's very beautiful. Uh, there's a lot to think about. The the idea of doing this every Shabbat makes all the sense in the world. It's a lot I mean, of work, can, but can I give an example? Please, I'm not saying to do this, but let let's say for argument's sake. We look at every line of Dayenu. Why each line in Dayenu, it, that in itself would be a reason for us to express our gratitude to God. That would suffice. So some of the lines of Dayenu, you say, is that really, is that something I'm so profoundly grateful for? Some of them are very difficult and work on the answers. By the way, the commentaries do that. Masada Rav Kook has this commentary of, of many of the great Rishonim and many of the early Achronim. There are others that, that and, and you know what? save some of those lines for lunch or for let's say the uh, the dinner or for sudash lishi whatever it might be or for walk even Cholomoid. yeah walk around the block exactly you know and, and something else we say halal multiple times throughout the year besides the 21 times at chazal institute we say it so many times so take some of the great explanations that you see in the commentaries you have in your house to tehillim whether it's you know the 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 um, the art scroll has a beautiful did a beautiful job right now on on Tanakh the Reuben in the Milstein is Nevi'im Achronim Reuben's Nevi'im Rishonim but there's Tehillim there are many other great commentaries on Tehillim and you know what use that and you use some of the questions that you would raise for Hallel people are tired at that point in the Seder you may want to do more singing but you can come back to them throughout the holiday. Um, striking and and uh, and helpful ideas, Rabbi. Wow, thank you so much for coming along and sharing those ideas with us. Yeah, for, for really to, to everyone, stay healthy, look after your families. And, and I would just say this: as difficult as this time is economically for all of us, it's profoundly difficult, and many people are going to be losing their jobs. But in the midst of all of that, we have time that we can quality time with our family, with our God for serious, meaningful prayer in quality time to read the kind of books or read the kind of svarim that we just never took the time to read. It's a, it's a chance to grow as a human being. It's a tremendous opportunity and it's a time for reflection. Rabbi Pardo, thank you so much for allowing me to be on your show. Thanks for joining us and thanks for the advice. You know, we'll, we'll be looking back at these, uh, at these days, these weeks, maybe these months and uh, maybe even missing them. Thanks for coming along, Rabbi Wild. Can't wait to talk to you next. Stay safe. You are on OU Live. My name is Rabbi David Pardo. We have a great program coming up for you in a little bit. We're going to meet the found, one of the founders of Kosher Troops and a chaplain in the US Army. I asked before, I'll ask again, if there's a program, something that you're involved in, if it's a sheer, if it's a national thing, if it's a call-in, if it's... Um, something that you're doing on a daily basis, uh, run by an organization, run by your friend, if it's a Facebook group, I'd love to hear what's keeping you excited, what's keeping you interested. You can email us, live at ou.org. You can drop it in the comments um, and it could be a great opportunity to promote them. In the meantime, I'm very excited to introduce a friend of mine, Rabbi David Jenkins. Rabbi David Jenkins is the Kasher, been a coordinator at OU Kosher, And he's right there. There we go. Bonsai. Hello there. Rabbi Jenkins, what what's uh what do you got there in the background? 
Well, I have a fish tank in case we get hungry. <laughs> um, we, some people buy sushi. We grow our own sushi. I, I, if you're in Brooklyn, I, that's the trendy way to go. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> uh, so, Rabbi Jenkins, you were, no, no, sorry. Uh, is it, would you say it's a busy time around the OU now? Well, it's a very busy time. And especially now with the situation that we're all in, that we're all working remotely. And um, it's, you know, it's a tough time. It's a tough time for all of us. But now when you have Pesach two weeks away, it makes it that much more of a um, interesting time. Yeah, so I'm wondering, how is the uh, how is the current economic situation, but not just economic, you're talking like supply chains, talking about mass movement of uh, massive quantities of food, how is that affecting the kosher for Pesach product lines? Well, at this point, of course, I know that Rabbi Ganek and Rabbi Elephant were making sure and we're talking to a lot of our manufacturers, especially our, our uh, kosher vendors, there is, according to them, more than enough food for Passover for everybody to have. And unfortunately, with a lot of the Pesach um, uh, programs closing down, also there might even be a little bit more than that. So there is more than enough oh, people don't have to go out. Lack and, of pressing is gonna... You know, we're gonna have there's plenty of food. People don't have to go out and, you know, and, and be scared that they're not gonna find food a week later. There is more than enough. You know, the, I, I can't say in all the out-of-town places. I don't know about all the out-of-town places. I do know the New York area is more than enough. And I'm sure in the other cities, too, there's, you know, more than enough food for everybody to be able to have. And, you know, the question is, when it comes to certain places around the country, you know, they order for a certain amount, you know, in the, ch- in the, in the supply, tra- cha- uh, supply chain, the question is, you have people already in certain areas already overbought what was going into the supply chain. So that I don't know, but I know in the tri-state area, there's more than enough food for people to get in all of our uh, stores. That's, that's a relieving news. I'm sure for a lot of people, um, certainly for my wife. So my question to you is, I know I see you on a somewhat regular basis, but what, what is your role in, uh, in the OU kosher world? Well, I'm what's called a rabbinical coordinator. There is more than 50 of us in the office. We all deal, um, a lot of our, uh, my, my fellow friends deal with different parts of the industry that they've become very accustomed to dealing with, experts in the field on different things. Um, you'll have people in our office from the rabbinical quarters who'll deal with bakeries, uh, candy, flavors, more industrial ingredients. We have somebody, Rabbi Singer, who deals just with Passover the whole year. That's his job dealing with Passover because Passover runs are basically going on basically the whole year. The only time they're not doing a Passover run usually is during Passover, but usually the rest of the time of the year, you know, in the supply train, uh, supply uh, chain, the supply chain, thank you, they're basically manufacturing all the time for it so you know what you see your that, does that mean does that mean specific companies are always doing passover well, or you that have means... to remember like this i'll give an example you know when you're making ingredient you need certain types of ingredients you need let's say for an example citric acid 
or you're going to need some oils. You're going to need flavor chemicals. So those are like the beginning of what's going to be in the supply train, uh, chain. Those are going to be manufactured way in advance. That means when you get to that end product, so all the ingredients that were made for that end product had to be manufactured before. And the ingredients that are going into the intermediate ingredients, they have to be manufactured before. And those, a lot of those base ingredients and chemicals are going to have to be manufactured way before that. So that means the Passover production in a lot of aspects could be 10 months before, 11 months before the actual end Pesach product that you're getting, you're going to have. So that means there's a whole supply ch chain that's being, you know, that's already manufacturing for the following Passover. So where are these factories? They're, They're all over the world. You have them in China. You have them in Europe. You have them here in the United States. You have things being made all across the world for for food manufacturing. So China is a touch of a sensitive uh, topic now as far as countries go, but... Um, I don't think a lot of the mashkichim live in China. Um, well, we actually have mashkichim in China. We have, we do use a lot of the shluchim who are excellent, who are wonderful people, who have who have chabad houses in China, who do a lot of work for us. We also have a a, a, a nice uh, cadre of mashkichim that come from Eretz Yisrael who do work for us, who are full timers for us, who just work, for example, like Mati Grunberg who works full-time in China for us, two weeks there, two weeks home, three weeks there, one week home. So we have we, we, we have a very heavy presence in China. There's a lot of manufacturing, a lot of ingredients that are being manufactured in China. You've been out there? Yes, I usually go there myself twice a year. What, what, do you, what, do you bring, what does your wife want you to bring back when you go? My wife doesn't want me to bring back anything, but don't worry, I'll make sure to bring something back for her anyway. <laughs> you know my wife, my wife just wants me to come home. <laughs> that, that's heartwarming, but I was also hoping for uh, like a funnier answer. <laughs> Sorry. Like real soy sauce, I don't know. Like what's, what's... <laughs> you want real soy sauce, you go to Japan. <laughs> okay, yeah, it, perhaps culturally insensitive. Uh, so... <laughs> so... What what is it? What does it look like to walk into a factory for the first time? Well, it depends on what type of factory you're talking about, because you know you're talking about a very wide range of factories. For example, one of the first factories I ever walked into was actually in 1983. Was asked to go into an oil facility of of cooking oils, where they refine oils, uh, make them into shortenings, make them into what's called vegetable oils, salad oils into margarine, into, uh, into, uh, into all different types of forms that oil can be made into. You have something called teeter, something which is a very hard oil, which is actually used for shortening and for margarine, because there's a certain time, which still goes on today, but maybe not as much as before, where you had a lot of margarine and shortening been used in a lot of food manufacturing products. You have, you know, oil, cooking oil, something that's very important for every aspect of the industry. So here you walk into a facility where you have miles and miles of piping and tons of tanks, all different types of tanks, all types of different refinery equipment. And you had in this situation, this goes back to 1983, where you were doing in this facility, they were doing kosher and non-kosher oils. They were doing 
They were doing soybean oil. They were doing a corn oil, for an example. They were doing also lard and tallow. So now if you have lard and tallow that's going through the same facility refinery as kosher vegetable oils, how do you keep it separate? So here you're looking at miles and miles of pipes. You're looking at different types of tanks, different types of what's called deodorizers, hydro converters, all these different things. Now, how do you keep it separate? How do you keep everything that's actually a totally kosher facility if you have these type of oils in, you know, that they're refining and in, in these type of facilities. So you have to learn the whole plant. You have to go to the holding tanks where they're unloading the crude oils to see how they're being refined, making sure all the equipment is completely separated, making sure not only that, the hoses and the links and the couplings are different, different sizes that they can't be, they can't be intermingled. And you have to be on top of it from the beginning of the facility all the way to the end to make sure that the whole facility is completely separate. And that's the type of facility when I first walked in, this is what it took us a long time to actually to separate it correctly because there was a few of us who were working this plant together where we kept finding, finding connections where you could have connections between the animal and vegetable oils. And um, it took a lot of work but we, were able, we accomplished it. It was a beautiful facility. In the United States today, there's not too many facilities left that are really doing uh, animal oils anymore. There are a few, but nothing like what used to be in the past. So that was the first facility I ever walked into. Another facility I walked into was also Carnation. Uh, Carnation, you know, the, the Carnation drinks. Yeah. And um, they asked me from the office at, at that time, I think it was 1987. I was living in St. Louis, Missouri at the time. They asked me to go and kosherize a spray dryer. So I walked into this facility. I look at this thing. And the first thing that this spray dryer, which is about five stories high, it looked like a tornado. And I thought I was back in the Wizard of Oz. And I looked at this thing and I said, what am I supposed to do with this? I didn't have a clue how to kosherize this thing. So they had to send down somebody who's not with us anymore, Rabzisha Blech, Zechitzah Lebrach, who came there to show me how to kosher the spray dryer, which spray dryers in general are not an easy thing to kosherize. So now I'm, I'm curious, your average, your average mashkiach, not average, the, the, the prototypical mashkiach, first off has to be a bucky nordea, has to know halacha inside out. But then we're talking about food science and we're talking about uh, maybe some like low level engineering. Um, are there are there are people specializing in different like chemistry versus? Well, machinery? we're very fortunate at the OU that we have an unbelievable amount of talent. And I'll just tell you one story of somebody that I'm actually very close to, Rabbi Jervel, who actually can walk into a facility and can talk to any food scientist, engineer, and any aspect of what they're doing and actually be able to give them ideas and hints of what they're doing. We have a guy by the name of Rabbi Stone. Rabbi Stone, who lives in West Orange, was actually a close friend of mine. We were, live, we were in yeshiva together in St. Louis, where that man, if you want to know anything about a water system on, on, on any aspect of, of, of a pasteurizer, he is an expert on that. And where did we all learn this? Basically in yeshiva. That means, you know, 
you go in, you know, you look at what the facility is. You, in order to do certification correctly, you have to know what they're manufacturing and how they're manufacturing. And before you even walk into the facility, you have to do your homework ahead of time to, you know, to understand what they're doing before you get there. Because you have to realize when you're going to these facilities, you're dealing with college-educated, very intelligent people. You're talking about people who have masters in, 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 in food chemistry. You're talking about people who are engineers. You're talking about very intelligent people. So you just can't walk in, pardon my expression, like a dummy, <laughs> and think that you're going to impress these people. You have to actually go in there and know what they're doing before you walk in. Last question before I let you go. Has anyone ever asked you to bless the plant? Yes. Yes. Do you, do you, do you indulge? <laughs> we then explained to him what kosher fruit, food certification is all about. And does it, does anyone get let down? Huh? Does anybody get let down? Like, oh uh, man. No, they didn't. You know, a lot of people just don't understand what it means because a lot of a lot of them think it's blessing the plant, which in real the real aspect of it is basically is quality control. And a lot of the people there can understand what quality control is, but now there's another depth of quality control called kosher food certification. And to these people, that's what it is. It's another concept in quality control, a little bit more than that, because a lot of them realize the religious significance behind it. Rabbi Jenkins, thank you so much for cutting out time to explain what actually goes on behind the uh, behind the symbol. All right, and there's sushi waiting for you. Okay, after the show. Take care. I'll pop right in. Take care. B Say hi. Bye-bye. We're on OU Live. My name is Rabbi David Pardo. We're, uh, we're here every weeknight at 9 p.m. Monday through Thursday. We have a lineup, thank God, every night. Uh, we post in the morning. Uh, our next guests, we're very excited to have to welcome Sarah Furst, who's a co-founder of Kosher Troops, and Captain Svi Teitelbaum, who is a chaplain in the U.S. Army. You guys are... Sarah, are you there? Yes. Hello. Oh, there we go. Hi. Um, Captain Teitelbaum? Yeah, I signed in without video, so. Oh, okay. Oh, terrific. No, um, now, now's a good time to, to flick it on. Sarah is a co-founder of Kosher Troops, um, a not-for-profit I'll ask you to talk about in a second, but uh, that's this. That's not your, your full-time. You're an associate real estate broker at Fjörst & Fjörst. Um, it's a banking background in Bank Lomi. And um, Captain Teitelbaum served, uh, joined the army in 2011, has been deployed twice to Iraq and twice to Afghanistan and also spent some time in Kuwait and ran Starum, uh, not the kind of uh, Pesach programs uh, most of us want to be on, but are curious to hear more about. So um, for those of us who don't know, first off, thank you for joining the program. Thank you. For those of us who don't know about kosher troops, could you tell us um, what it is. Yeah, so Coastal Troops is a nonprofit organization run by purely by volunteers. It sends care packages to the Jewish American troops that are stationed all over the world. Um, and how did you, you, you had this idea, how did it start? 
Um, well, no, I did not have this idea. It started uh, when my daughter had a, her bat mitzvah in 2008. She's married with a kid now. And um, we were looking for a, you know, a, uh, something to do meaningful for her bat mitzvah. And um, we decided that since it was near Purim, we're going to send care packages um, to the troops, you know, Shalach Manas. And uh, at that time, we collected about 150 names, and we sent out 150 packages that the girls at the party put together. Wow. Yeah. After so that, that was a great start. And then you were like, let's turn this into an organization? So basically, after that, we got so many, um, so many uh, uh, responses, both from the troops and from the uh, people in the community that, that we reached out to for help, that it was like, everybody's like, such a great idea and this and that, and, and the troops were so happy, you, you thank you so much that you, you didn't forget us. And I said, you know what, Purim is not a big deal. Purim is just like, you know, some hamantash and some candies. What's gonna happen for Pesach? So I got nervous about Pesach and I recruited my neighbors and I told them, do you wanna um, you know, adopt a soldier? And I got people to adopt the soldiers and we, we sent stuff for Pesach and then we kept on going and going. And that's how my partner Eva got involved because she was my neighbor. And um, that's how, she, you know, the two of us just kept on going gung-ho and, and uh, Eva's like, we gotta make something out of this. We gotta make it into a real thing. And uh, that's a couple months later, I guess by Rosh Hashanah, we started like really seriously and um, we made it into a real thing, non-for-profit, non you know, to be able to reach out to real companies that gave us, you know, the real food donations and uh, and for people to give us donations that are tax deductible, et cetera, you know. And uh, Captain Teitelbaum, how are how are you involved in kosher troops? I'm not I'm not involved with uh, kosher troops. I'm a chaplain of the United States Army. I'm a soldier, and I'm a recipient of the kosher troop packages. Uh, when when was the first time? How, how, how that happened? First time, I believe is. I believe it was 2015. Um, I believe it was 2015, September. I showed up to Kuwait. Um, it was, it already, weather started to, to cool down already. The summer was over uh, and the hot weather was over. Uh, so it was only about 115, 117. I came into the chaplain annex where I was told I'd be doing my services. I went into the back room. I tried to push the door open and I couldn't get it open. It was piled, the entire room was piled all the way up with boxes, packages from kosher troops to be, to be used uh, during and at the services and to be distributed throughout the country for the kosher, um, for the Jewish troops. That, that was the country of Kuwait. This was in Kuwait. And you, you were suddenly in charge of, of distributing this food? Yes. Uh, tried distributing, sharing. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a lot of fun. It was it was really fantastic. Um, Sarah, how do you find uh, the Jewish soldiers, or do you send boxes of matzah to just anyone with a Goldstein last name? How does that work? We so we since we started, we we follow up on them. We're like, I don't know. Sometimes I'm afraid they're gonna think I'm like a you know I'm like running after them. <laughs> but we follow them. You know, I I uh, I find them on Facebook or, or we just continue the, the 
communication with them. For example, if, if I sent stuff to somebody for Purim, I asked them, are you still there for Pesach? And if not, where are you going? So we follow up with them all the time. Or sometimes uh, people like, you know, Chaplain Teitelbaum, who knows about, which is, will tell me, by the way, I'm going to Afghanistan, uh, you know, next month, and I'm going to need you to send me stuff for the satyrs and whatever. And so it goes both ways. I mean, at this point, um, most of the, I would like to say, most of the Jews in the military knows about kosher troops. So they reach out to us. So you're not just sending food, you're actually maintaining relationships oh, yeah. with people over time. Absolutely. We actually have hosted um, cadets from West Point for Shabbatons, um, military, um, Rabbi Tyler and his family has spent Shabbatons with us in Muncie, in the community of Muncie. Um, we, we do have a close uh, relationship with the military, not just uh, sending packages. We follow up with them and they follow up with us. Sometimes we get invited to their weddings. Um, we've actually hosted uh, a uh, vort and a few um, uh, Sheva brachas. So we're, we're, they're like family for us. We're like, you know, we're very involved with them. And, and what, uh, how has, how has, how have things changed? Uh, since COVID, since coronavirus, uh, how has that impacted your Pesach activities? Well, we we do everything with volunteers. So um, you can imagine that it was very hard to get volunteers. We didn't we didn't really have any volunteers um, who were brave enough to come to our warehouse. So um, we Baruch Hashem, we had this uh, group of uh, of lone soldiers that are um, the are involved in, they have like a group of them here in New York and they came and they helped us out. And Lone soldiers is a phrase I haven't heard associated with the US military, only the Israeli yeah. one. What, what's yeah. a lone soldier in? No, the lone soldier, the Israeli lone soldier. There, there's a group. Oh, of, Badim. okay. Yeah, that they're here and they, they have come in the past to volunteer for us and they, they basically stepped up and they said, you know, do you need any helpers? And I said, absolutely, we, we have nobody. So they came and, and we, this year, because you're asking about COVID, because of COVID, uh, number one, we did not get as much um, food as we get donated. We usually get donations from all the food companies, the kosher food companies. And this year we only got 25% of what we usually get. Wow. And we get, we get tons, tons of pallets of food. And, uh, you know, with this whole disaster happening, people were obviously, you know, thinking about other things or whatever issues they had and whatever. And um, so we did Baruch Hashem get uh, the 25% that we got, which which basically brought us down to only sending to our state, um, our deployed um, troops, not our state side. I would, have uh, had, I would have had a total of like almost 2000 troops to send packages to but we had to boil it down to just the deployed, which were a little bit over 500. And uh, Captain Teitelbaum, what happens if, if, the, if the food packages don't come in from, <coughs> from Sarah? Like the US Army doesn't provide kosher food? Ah, that's actually a very good question. So the, co the, the US Army does provide kosher foods. Um, however, on deployment, well, in general, um, Food obviously is not available. There's no kosher food available in, in the defect, the dining facilities. So 
on deployment will eat uh, what the military will provide is mostly MREs, meals ready to eat. Um, so the, the MREs made by Labriot, they're, 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 they're good, they're manageable. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're perfectly fine. I've used them on many of my, almost all my missions. Um, when it comes time for Pesach though, the Labriot meals are even better. Um, so that the Pesach MREs are actually even better than the, the, the ones all year round. Um, I remember one time I, I showed up during Tishrei and I found in, uh, in, in a, a storage closet, a bunch of Pesach MREs. And that's what I ate during Tishrei because they were so much better. Uh, I, I believe that they, I think Meal Mart makes them for, for Pesach or whatever it is. But this year, actually, um, DLA, which is the uh, Defense Logistics Agency, um, they're the ones who do the purchasing and all the, all the official purchasing and supplies for the military. Um, usually supplies will show up maybe six to eight weeks before Pesach. That's just the way, the way it is. I mean, in, in October, we're already projecting and ordering for Pesach just because DLA takes quite a while. Um, until they get all their numbers in, they purchase everything at once, they need the numbers from all over the world. So it takes quite a while. Well, this year, DLA has um, shipped and delivered the Pesach packages, um, which is not only kosher MREs, it's also Seder kits. Um, Seder kits complete with the Seder plate, the haroses, the everything, including a Kittel and a Haggadah and a Yarmulke, a complete, they're, they're really beautiful kids. Well, DLA has delivered this year close to three months in advance. So everyone on deployment will be covered for the Sadarim and whatever other kosher MREs they may need. Um, and that's actually, those deployed this year are in better luck because uh, they, they've ordered the supplies from DLA while the folks back home who expected to go to a Seder now won't be able to go to a Seder. So they're scrambling to get stuff. And DLA is, is coming through. The Army's really coming through. But for those being deployed um, during Pesach, they're actually in the best shape in terms of Army supplies. Captain Teitelbaum, question. Um, what's the most uh, exotic Seder you've run overseas? Honestly, I, I've, I, ironically, I've never run a Seder overseas. Um, <laughs> I always manage not to be overseas during Pesach. My, my deployments just lined up that way, that I was right, never overseas during Pesach. Um, I've supported uh, Pesach missions overseas and Sadarim. Um, more so this year, we're kind of coming together to support the troops um, because there are no chaplains who are deploying to the Middle East for Pesach. Uh, but I, I myself have never been, um, never done a Seder overseas. Is the military slowing down now during the COVID-19 crisis the way, you know, any industry, any neighborhood is, or is it totally different? Um, the military is pretty much doing the same thing everyone else is. We're being super careful. Um, many of our offices are closed, which means we're working from home remotely. Um, hence, I, I don't need to be in uniform. 
most of us are working from home remotely, uh, phone numbers being transferred to cell phones, um, uh, everyone taking their workstations home, which the computer, laptop. Um, so the work has not slowed down in many ways. It kind of picked up, but um, we're, we're doing kind of the same thing everyone else is staying home, staying safe. Um, the military is taking great precautions to keep everyone safe. Um, and, and the reason I say our workload may have increased is because we're having to look out for the troops in ways that we don't usually. Uh, Sarah, for those who are watching and very inspired by the idea, the organization and your work, how do they get involved? Um, so people can um, donate, of course, <laughs> or they can uh, volunteer. Uh, we have local, uh, you know, in Muncie, we're located in Muncie and people from the New York area, they come and they help us with um, um, whenever we pack for the, for the troops. Uh, they can help us probably with um, with the, the marketing and, and stuff like that, computer stuff, you know, those, those kind of things that any organization needs because everything, as I said before, is done with just volunteers. And where do they find you online? koshertroops.com. koshertroops.com. Yeah. Okay. And they can reach out to you and they can reach out to Ava. Right. I just wanted to point out one thing that the Robert was saying about the deployed troops. We also have families that are stationed in places like Japan and Italy and Spain. And those were the ones that were also pretty much affected, especially from Italy, for example. I got way back, I already got emails from um, military families in, in Italy asking me to please send them at least matzah and maybe some macaroons because the commissary was already closed and everything was closed off and the whole country was closed. So those are, the, we're, you know, we also help the military families that are stationed in different places and, and um, you know, with their communities. So that's one of the things that we're hopefully, I'm hoping to get, I got, uh, so far I just got uh, two replies because we sent everything as of last Friday. Uh, I got two replies, one from Germany that came in right away and one from Alaska, because even though Alaska is not Europe, it's pretty far away. We figured we want to send him to. So um, those are the only, you know, ones that reached out, told us we received your packages. I'm waiting to hear from, from the, the other ones. But that's also, it's not just the ones who are deployed, but it's also the families who depend on the commissary that doesn't always have stuff or in this situation because of COVID that it, they did not get matzahs or other kosher Pesach products on time. We definitely don't often think enough of not just the uh, the sacrifice and service of the service members, but even of their families and the circles of impact. So, Sarah, thank you for, for your work. Thanks for coming on the show. And Captain Teitelbaum, thank you for your service. Thank you for your and, support. Um, and uh, it was, was terrific connecting. So hopefully we, uh, we could do this in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Call to. This is OU Live. My name is Rabbi David Pardo. We are here every weeknight. We're here tomorrow night at 9 p.m. I'll uh, have a great lineup. God willing, we will be releasing in the morning. If there is something that has really kept you excited, involved, and something you're looking forward to, and you want, you are willing to share with us, 
OULive at OU.org. We'll see you tomorrow. This is OU Live. I'm Rabbi David Pardo signing off.